All right, thanks to all those who uh, helped lead us in worship this morning. Appreciate them. It's good to see everyone. A crisp fall morning. Finally feels like fall a little bit, which is good. All right, I'm going to start the sermon this way. We are Enid MB Church, and we are imperfect. Kind of starting the sermon like a 12-step program, right? But I'm going to ask you to say it with me now. Can you do that? We are Enid MB Church, and we are imperfect. Do we have that self-awareness? The awareness that can say we are imperfect people who make up this imperfect body with imperfect ministries. We are imperfect. I hope that it's been liberating to admit that. Because the church can, I think, sometimes crush people with this perceived idea that we are perfect. And it's when the church tries to camouflage its imperfections, when it tries to be something that it's not, that its influence in the world actually is made very, very small. But, but, despite our imperfections, God calls us his church. And we know from scripture that God absolutely loves his church. We know that Christ died for the church. The Holy Spirit indwells its members. We are a people pieced together as a temple, a glorious temple built to glorify God. And one of the ideas that I've shared in our studies thus far, our studies of the church, is that if you want God to tangibly show up in your life, he's likely going to do that through your involvement in a local church. If you're searching for God, desperately saying, man, God, I need you. God, I want to I see you. God, please show up in my life today. My question would be, are you actively involving yourself in a local church? Because each of us in this room, I think we face very real problems, very real stresses and issues in our lives. Some of us have the death of loved ones that we've been up against, illnesses, addiction, anxiety, fear. And the primary tool God wants to use to meet you and to minister to you in those issues is your local church. Wherever you are in life right now, the church can meet you in that place. And it can minister to you. And that's the thing that makes this sermon series on the church just extremely practical for us. You know, you may not think on the surface that understanding the nature and the design and the purpose of the local church is at all practical. But I'd say to you that the church you're a part of is designed by God to interact with you basically every day. It may be through encouragement or through accountability, maybe through care, or through the prayers of those that are close to you and close to your situation. Literally hundreds of ways. Some of them you don't even see. So when you get sick, as happens, or when you get honest about your marriage problems, or when you confess to a stronghold of sin or unbelief in your life, any of that happens to you, and our people, they won't run from you, they'll run to you. They'll surround you with help and encouragement and care and support and accountability. They essentially take on the character of God. When you are suffering or if you are in sin, does God run from you or does God run to you? He runs to you. And one of the ways he does that is through the church. One thing we nailed down is that God's love for the church and therefore his love for the individual people in the church is not contractual. It is, as we said last week, 
covenantal, meaning since God has justified you through the work of His Son, there is now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the God of the universe is for you, and if He is for you, He can never be against you. So understanding that glorious truth, truth that says that God is for us and He will never leave us, nor will He forsake us, that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Well, coming to understand that great truth causes in the church is it creates a people who no longer seeing, excuse me, who, who no longer seek to get from one another, like people who have entered into a contract, you know, give me this and I'll give you that. But it creates in a people, it creates and results in a people who've been given so much in Christ that they want to give to each other regardless of reciprocity. And last week, we read through every single one another in the New Testament. And we did that to understand what exactly God wants us to become for each other. Again, the one another's in the New Testament are not what we demand from the church, but they are what we bring to the church. And if there's reciprocity, man, great. If we are faithful in greeting one another and serving one another and bearing one another's burdens and loving one another, man, that, that's great. But if there's not reciprocity, you're just going to keep bringing that to the table. You're going to keep loving, and you're going to keep serving, you're going to keep admonishing and singing and encouraging. And so just to sum up our first three weeks, we've said the church is not a place, the church is a people. And it's a people built on the Word of God, on Christ as the cornerstone, and we're held together, joined together because of the grace of Jesus. And it's that grace, that cornerstone grace, that makes us strong and sure and stable. And finally, as we talked about last week, God has made us in that grace his covenant people, not his contractual, contractual people. God has a covenant love for us that's contingent upon him, not contingent upon us. So these first three weeks, in talking about the church, they've basically been theological and relational in nature. Theological from the standpoint of the church being God's people. We belong to God. He has redeemed us and he keeps us in Christ. So that's theological. And then relational from the standpoint that he has joined us together. We are living stones placed and growing together in Christ. Together. That's relational. And I want to now take the next couple of weeks and talk about how the church is structured. So we go from theological to relational, now structural. And in doing that, we're going to talk about membership this week, and then we're going to talk about leadership in two weeks. We're going to do that on the 20th because we have that Mission Encounter Sunday coming next week. So this week we talk about membership. And I'm not teaching from any particular or specific single text this morning, which is really difficult for me. This series that we've been in has kind of taken us away from our normal just exposition of a book of the Bible and moving through verse by verse. So uh, bear with me as we bounce around and hit a few different scriptures. If you want to leaf through your Bible and find where we're going, great. If not, I'll be reading some things to you and you can kind of follow along uh, in your mind or as you take notes. But you know that it is not uncommon in our world today for Christians just to move from church to church, to church, sort of looking for the things that, that they want. Right music, and right child care, and right service times, and right coffee, and right donuts, and right parking, and the right bathroom, and all of that, right? And these people move around from church to church with sort of a consumer mindset. 
You know, they, they're wanting what they want from the church, and then they want to sort of discard the rest. And as they do this, a couple of things don't happen. They never really submit themselves to the care and the instruction of the leaders in a church. That's one thing. And then they also never commit themselves to a group of fellow believers. And they never get intentional about sharing their gifts with the church, investing their resources in the church. None of that stuff happens. And this mentality is actually epidemic in our culture. People treating the church like just another set of goods and services. And I'm sure this phenomenon is not a surprise to you because we live in a culture that is sort of allergic to commitment, don't we? People would rather stay on the fringe. They would rather stay sort of loosely affiliated to things rather than than go all in. And it's not just with the church. It's with everything. I think our endless choices and options have a way of just paralyzing our commitment to anything. We're, We're sort of grown accustomed to saying, man, if I choose this, then I'm going to miss out on that. I don't know if I want to choose this. I don't want to miss out on that. How many of you have ever picked out a couch? Some of the guys are like, dude, I don't do that. Um, (laughs) If you've ever picked out a couch, maybe you've gone to one of these like monster furniture stores um, in, in Oklahoma City, like Mathis Brothers or one of these places, right? And you go in and there's this giant showroom and they have like 150 couches. And you're like, whoa, information, you know, this is overload. And not only do they have the 150 couches on the floor, they have this like corner of the showroom that is just loaded with like hundreds of different fabrics. So if it's not out here, you can find it over here and customize your own thing and get exactly what you want. I walk into that environment and I just kind of shut down like, nah, I can't make a decision. Like I, I can't go sit in them all, I can't go see them all, I'm not going to go through all that fabric. I'm convinced that if Mathis Brothers had four couches, they'd sell more couches. You just go in, oh, that one, that's the one I want. It would just work a whole lot better. But because of the choices, you're just like, gosh, I I can't do this. And that's sort of a crude example, but the inability to commit is pervasive in our our culture. It exists in people that sort of prolong their adolescent years. They don't choose a career. They don't choose a spouse. They they, they don't want to commit. They don't want to give themselves over to anything. Yet to, to, to neglect or to refuse to join a church as a formal member, that, I think, reflects a massive misunderstanding of the believer's responsibility to the body of Christ. It's really important for every Christian, I think, to understand what church membership is and why church membership matters. So there in your notes, what is membership? Church membership has two facets, really. First, when you trust in Christ to save you from your sin and you enter into the the universal body of Christ, you become, by default, a member of God's church. That's facet one. We call that universal membership. And since you're then joined to Christ's body, what what does that do? Well, it makes you a qualified member for a local expression of that body which is what we see in churches like ours. We're a localized expression of the universal church. So that's facet two, local membership. So as churches gather all over Enid this morning, all of us who have trusted in Christ as Savior, all of us across the community, really across the country, all of us belong to the church, Big C Church. Yet at the same time, all of us had chosen to participate and join smaller expressions of that big C church, and we call those local churches. So those are small C church. 
So the question that immediately comes with that point is, okay, Jay, then why do I need to join a small, a small C church if I am already a part of the big C church? Is church membership even biblical? That's a great question. Because with this whole series on the church, I haven't been just giving you my opinion on the church. Rather, I've wanted us to see God's word on the church. I want to submit to what God says in his word in the New Testament. We understand and see there about the church. Just not my opinion or my preferences or my takes, but really God's word on the church. So to ask, is it even biblical? That's the absolute right question. And although scripture does not contain any explicit command to formally join a local church, the biblical foundation for church membership absolutely permeates the New Testament. So even though you won't find a clear verse that says, join a church, you will see certain language and church structure and an overall pattern in the New Testament that helps us see that local church membership is the assumed posture of every believer in Christ. <clears throat> so the biblical basis for church membership, it can, it's there in your notes. It can be seen clearly in four areas. The example of the early church, the existence of church government, so basically structure and leadership, the exercise of church discipline. Don't let that scare you. We'll talk that a little bit. And then fourth, the New Testament's exhortation to build up the body, build up the body of Christ. So first, the example of the early church in the New Testament. What we see in the book of Acts and in the epistles of the New Testament is that in the early church, coming to Christ was coming to the church. When individuals repented and believed in Christ, they were baptized and added to the church. That's the pattern. So going all the way back <clears throat> to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a message in Jerusalem. Each person gathered, hears the gospel in their own language, in their own tongue, and 3,000 people are baptized and added to the number of the disciples. And the fact that there were 3,000 of them, it really does mean something. The Bible doesn't say there were 3,000 of them just to say that there were a lot of them. It says that there were 3,000 to, to tell us that someone was keeping track of the converts, and there were literally 3,000 of them. They weren't just standing back and looking at the crowd going, what do you think, 3,000? No, they, they were baptizing. It was important to know who a follower of Christ was and who was not, and the number was not hard to, to, to come up with because these con converts, they were being baptized that day. So the tally was probably fairly exact. And with this mass conversion, the thinking of the apostles quickly turned to, okay, now we have to send these people home to their distant cities to live, their, to live out their newfound faith in Christ. How are we going to do that? And so the way they did it, the way they shepherded this new people of God, what they did was they attached these new converts to a localized group called a church. An ecclesia is what the New Testament, the, the Greek says. And that means a called-out gathering. So in the first through third centuries, these local gatherings, they usually met in homes. Therefore, they would only grow as large as they could gather together, meaning as the church grew in a location, there likely became multiple churches, multiple gatherings in each city, because, you know, the homes weren't really all that large. And so we have the book of Acts. The rest of the book chronicles this rapid expansion of the church as it takes on this pattern of growth that I just described. And then what we have with the other two-thirds of the New Testament are the epistles. 
which were these letters that men like Paul and Peter and John and James, they were writing to these scattered churches, and these, these letters served to instruct and to correct and encourage. And what else do we know about those letters? They were addressed to specific churches in specific places, addressing specific Issues. So, from the beginning, early in the New Testament, the church is not portrayed as, a, as universal. It's portrayed as local, as particular. Therefore, a Christian's attachment to the church was never only universal. It was also local. The New Testament also provides these language clues, I think, that instruct us toward a formal membership in the church. One of them is found in 1 Corinthians 14.23. Paul He's writing to the church's leadership in Corinth. And he says in verse 23, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place. Now, who did, have, who, who did Paul have in mind when he referred to the whole church? Does he mean the universal church? Every Christian from every place coming together? No. The realistic answer is that particular church's members coming together. The members in Corinth. One Bible translator working with the original language in this verse translates it when he says, he says this, if, if then the whole church assembles together and all of its members, he adds to the, to the verse. Because in his mind, and all of its members is an understood implication of the whole church. How would the Corinthian church leaders have known when the whole church was to gather in one place without knowing who was a member and who was not? Again, this implies membership. Another feature regarding the way the New Testament speaks of the church is its use of metaphors or word pictures to describe the church. You know, the church is called a body, and its people are the body's members. The idea of being a member of something, a civic club, a country club, an organization, that language is derived from the way the Bible speaks of the church being a body with members or parts the Bible doesn't borrow membership language from the culture. The culture borrows that language from the Bible. So when the Bible calls the church a body, it's connecting to the fact that your body isn't this casual collection of loosely related parts. No, it's a unified whole. It's working together. When you think about your own body, you know where to find your left hand, and your nose is in a certain place, and your knees are predictably halfway down your legs, and your legs are attached to your hips. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder which parts are really parts and which parts aren't really parts. In fact, if you have parts that aren't really parts, you should probably go to the doctor and figure all that out, right? The New Testament also calls the church a household another metaphor, a household. Do you have to wonder or guess who's, who's in your household and who is not? No, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. If it's not clear, again, we may need to talk. You may need to see someone. If your kid starts hanging out at my house all the time, doesn't go home, doesn't want to go home, we're going to have to have a long talk about whose family he's really in. Is he in my family, your family? Where does he belong? The New Testament's also called, excuse me, also calls the church a flock. Does a shepherd know his sheep? The Bible certainly says so. I mean, I'm not a shepherd. I, I, don't, I don't know from experience, but the Bible certainly says so. It says that the shepherd knows their distinguishing marks and their temperament and their age. He knows the sheep, and the sheep know him. One other metaphor. We've seen in Scripture 
that the people of God are called a temple. That means we're joined together in a worshiping community. The stones in the temple were meticulously laid. There was knowledge and purpose that went into each stone, such as the church. Each stone is clearly connected to the whole. So these metaphors point to a clearly identified membership in a local church. So that's this early church example that makes up this first point. I think it helps us tremendously in, in answering the question, is church membership even biblical? Second, the existence of church structure in the New Testament points to membership. So the consistent pattern throughout the New Testament when it comes to, to structure or, or leadership is that a plurality of elders is to oversee each body, each local body of believers. And the specific duties given to these elders presupposes something. It presupposes a clearly defined group of church members who are under those elders' care. And among other things, these godly men, these elders, are responsible to shepherd God's people. See that in 1 Peter 5, 2. They're to labor diligently among them, 1 Thessalonians 5.12. They're to have charge over them, 1 Timothy 5.17. And they're to keep watch over their souls, Hebrews 13.17. Scripture teaches that the elders will give an account to God for every individual allotted to their charge. So what you need to see is the responsibilities given to elders require that there be a distinguishable, understood membership in the church. Elders can shepherd the people and give an account to God for their spiritual well-being only if they know who they are. They can provide oversight only if they know those for whom they're responsible. They can fulfill their duty to shepherd the flock only if they know who is a part of the flock and who is not a part of the flock. The elders of a church are not responsible for the spiritual well-being of every individual who visits the church or who attends sort of sporadically. Rather, they are primarily responsible to shepherd those who have submitted themselves to the care and the authority of the elders. And the way this is done is through membership. And just one more word on elders, just to clarify it a little bit more. And we're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks. But what you need to know is that we are not to think of elders as some sort of Jedi council, you know, like Star Wars, this, this, this group, this mystical group that all control and power is held by, right? No, they're not a Jedi council. They're not the Mormon kid on the bike that wears a necktie and shows up to tell you about Joseph Smith. That's not an elder. Elders in the New Testament are given to govern, instruct, and shepherd local churches. And their fundamental duty is the same as a husband in a marriage, which is not just to be the boss of the household, but to be the one who is to lead the way in servant leadership to the family. The, the job of the elder is not to rule, it's to die. To follow Jesus, the chief shepherd, the chief elder, in laying down his life, his agenda, his prerogative for the sheep that have been entrusted to his care. That's what an elder does. So when you hear about a plan for, for our church to move to an elder structure, which you may have been hearing about, don't think that we're, that we're putting together a group of yes men for me to sort of boss around. That's not what we're doing. 
Or don't think that we're moving to this sort of top-down form of authority where just a few select people get to be in charge and no one has a say as to the affairs of the church. No, that's not what we're doing. Elders are servant leaders who seek the well-being of the church and its members, and they do this by being the examples in loving, serving, shepherding, and teaching. So we're going to talk about that more next week. Now, alongside that clearly defined leadership I just described, Scripture also teaches that believers, all the believers, are to submit to the elders, to that leadership. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. So the question for each believer then is, who are your leaders? The one who has refused to join a local church and entrust himself to the care and the authority of the elders has no leaders to submit to. So for that person, obedience to Hebrews thirteen seventeen is impossible. This verse implies that every believer knows to whom he must submit, which in turn assumes clearly defined membership. Think about it. If you're not a church member, who do you submit to? Some say, well, I like Tim Keller. I submit to his teaching. Or some say, well, I I submit to Chuck Swindoll, Insight for Living. I listen to that every day. Or maybe it's Charles Stanley or John Piper. And, And these are great, great pastors, great teachers, great elders. And it's great that you submit to their teaching because it's all really, really good teaching. Problem is, they don't know you. They can't shepherd you. They have no idea you even exist. And sure, you support their ministry and you get a Christmas card every year, but, but Piper's not going to show up when your marriage falls apart or when your kid's in the hospital. If you were entrusted to his care, he would, but you're not, so he won't. So submission to elders means a specific group of elders. Not church leaders from another church in town, not the guy on your favorite podcast, but a specific church's leaders that you've given yourself to. So you see how this fundamentally alters the way in which you select a church? If you know this stuff, you don't say, well, we're going to go here to to this church over here because, because our kids really like the video games in the youth room. No. You say, we're going to go here because there are a group of leaders I want to entrust the care of my soul to. That's a big difference. Third, church membership can be seen as biblical because of the exercise of church discipline in the New Testament. Real quick, and I don't have time to get deeply into this, so forgive me, but Matthew 18, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus himself outlines the way a church is to seek the restoration of a believer who's fallen into a pattern of sin and unbelief. And really, the point here is restoration. The point is not for a church to get sort of this Gestapo, this sin police together so that they can walk around and catch people in their sin and call them out for it and kick them out of the church. That's not, that's not discipline. That's not what it's about. It's, it, it's a process. Jesus gives us this great process for, for discipline and correction and accountability. First, in verse 15 of chapter 18 in Matthew, first, a brother sins, and we see here he's to be confronted privately by a single individual. And this should really happen all over the place in a church. Because we're knit together, we're close, we're in relationship together, and if I'm in relationship to you and I see something and I'm going, hey, what, what's going on there? And you see something to me and you're going, hey, what's going on there? And that's about as far as it should go. Repentance take place and, and these relationships are rich and full and we're just serving one another, sharpening one another in that way. That's the first step. 
Second, if that person caught in sin is refusing to repent, the individual who confronted them is to take one or two other believers along to to lovingly confront him again. That's what we see in verse 16. If that sinning brother refuses to listen to the two or three, they're to tell it to the church or to the church's elders. If there's still no repentance, the final step is to put the person out of the assembly, to treat them like an unbeliever, Jesus says, like a Gentile or a tax collector, which means they're welcome in the church. They just aren't seen as members of the church because membership is for believers. So the exercise of church discipline, according to Matthew 18 and other passages like 1 Corinthians 5 and Titus 3, it presupposes that a church knows who its members are. Because how can you set someone out if you don't know who is in? Right? And everyone now is just sort of nervous. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we move along. And last, the fourth thing there in your notes. We can say church membership is biblical because of the constant exhortation to build up the body. As I said a moment ago, the New Testament teaches that the church is the body of Christ. And God has called every member in it to a life devoted to the growth and well-being of the body. In other words, Scripture exhorts all believers to edify the other members by practicing what we call the one another's of the New Testament. And what's assumed in the one another's is we know who one another are. We're not guessing at who we are to one another. If we are obligated to one another, every Christian, then we'd be, then, then we'd be failing miserably at it. But we're not. We're to one another those who we have committed to, those in membership with us. As I went over last week, the New Testament tells us 59 times to one another, to love one another and serve one another and accept one another, to strengthen one another and help one another, encourage one another, care for one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, commit to one another, build trust with one another, be devoted to one another, be patient with one another, be interested in one another, confess to one another, live in harmony with one another. And I'm not going to read all of them again. But we have a hard time, a hard enough time, being these things for each other in this church. I'm not sure we can handle this list if it applies to the church universal. Confined to the church local, I think we have a fighting chance to become this and keep becoming this for each other, for our own joy and for God's glory and for unity and peace and harmony in the church. So what are some practical steps from here as we talk about church membership? Maybe you've been a member of this church for a long, long time, and you hear a message like this, and you're like, whoa, I'm not so sure about all of this. <laughs> I may need to step out. But maybe, you, maybe you've been here, and you want to join this church. You've never actually taken that step. And if you want to do that, here's what you need to do. You need to meet with a pastor, Chris or Jared or myself, or even someone from the church council. If you need to know who that is, you can call the church office. We're not going to do a starting point class this fall, which is our, our membership class, because we're kind of sort of covering a lot of church material here in our Sunday morning services, so meet with the pastor. It's a great place to start. Second thing you should do if you want to join, go public with it. We're going to have a membership Sunday on November 10th, so you can go public with your membership through baptism or just through a profession of faith, just telling the church, hey, I identify with Christ, I identify with you. I've committed my life to Christ, I commit myself 
to you. God's made covenant with me. I'm ready to make covenant with you. Third thing, start serving. You see a need, fill the need. You have a gift, start to exercise it. And then the fourth thing, start giving. Your treasure will follow your heart. If your heart is in this place, you'll invest your treasure in this place. There's a family I met with recently. It was incredible encouragement to me. They were basically brand new to our church. And first they said to me, man, Jay, we're excited. We are, we are all in. You know, we've invested in a life group. You know, we've come and we're enjoying. This is great. I'm like, awesome. And then, then they said, well, how can we serve? I'm like, oh, gosh, um, where do I start? And I start maybe thinking through the places where they can serve. And they said, well, here's how we're gifted. Here's how we've served the other churches that we've been a part of. What does the church need? Man, how can we, how can we invest? And they didn't stop there. They said, and, you know, we'd love to really start giving financially. What does that look like to do that regularly and consistently at E&MB? I'm like, this is the greatest day in my life as a pastor. <laughs> and not to minimize others who have come to the church sort of in a different way. I'm not, I'm not doing that. But in the midst of studying for this series and, and, and putting some things together for this, I just had this walking, talking example of somebody who came to the church just ready ready to be a part, ready to be a member. And I mentioned before that we're going to be facing, as we go through and, and unpack the meaning, the design, the nature of the local church, that, that we're going to have these hurdles to get over. And we're a 116-year-old church. You know, for Oklahoma, that's a long history. And as we look at what the Bible says, we're going to be bumping against, up against this, some tradition and some long-held beliefs and that sort of stuff. And maybe I've done that this morning, I don't know. And, and sometimes we get into these structural categories of the church and just becomes sort of so unpractical in, in some ways. But I hope you see how as we talk about membership and we talk about eldership and we talk about shepherding and loving and caring and the one another's, man, it's insanely practical. That this stuff in the body life of a church, man, it's, it's really in your face uh, every day, every day. So invest with me as we, as we study this. Invest with me as we do life together here in this place and we seek to serve one another, serve our community, serve uh, the world and see God glorified in his universal church and our local church as a part of that great expression. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your plan of redemption that is unveiled through the scripture. And we confess together that we would not have designed it in a way that, that involved this thing called church. We don't have the wisdom you have. We, wouldn't, we would not have collected this group of imperfect, messy, awkward people to accomplish the purposes that you want to perp- uh, accomplish in the world. But it is your design. And you are committed to it. And you are God, so you can pull it off. And we just submit to that and recognize that together. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that, that doesn't have a relationship with you, that they've never just fully put their trust in Christ, seeing what he's done on the cross, they've never given their heart and their life over to Christ, repented and pleaded for forgiveness for their sin. God, I pray that that would happen today. 
And maybe there's people here that have done that, but maybe they've stayed on the fringe of the church. God, I pray that you would move in them to, to commit here or somewhere else. Maybe that's, that needs to be somewhere else. We pray for your leading and your direction in all those circumstances. God, we thank you for each other. We thank you that you've uniquely placed people here so that we can love one another and sharpen one another, encourage one another. Help that to happen more and more and more. So you can take this group of imperfect people and show something just perfectly glorious to the world who's looking upon us. Bless us now as we continue in worship and take this Lord's Supper together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're about to take uh, communion together. We practice open communion here at Enid MB, which means you need not be a member of our church to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, I do want to remind you, however, that this, though, is for believers in Christ.